I'm your host, Effie Pilarino, and today I have the pleasure to have a digital human with us. And everybody, of course, knows Chris Skinner. He doesn't need any introduction. Welcome, Chris. Hi, Effie. How are you? I am good. Is it a cold, uh, crispy day over there? <laughs> yeah, here just outside Warsaw. We've got lots of snow and it's quite slippy. And uh, I know you're in Switzerland, which is fresh, but not quite so snowed in. It's not, it's not. We did have some fresh uh, snow here in, in Fribourg in the center of Switzerland, but it's sunny and uh, I think it's going to melt away. <laughs> you know, Chris, uh, it was funny the other day on, on Twitter, um, there was this, uh, fintech list you know of influencers and you were not included and that there were some of uh, uh, people that are were not included in the list uh, really complaining how come chris was not on the list and i think that you know you are the most sort of missed from this list which tells a lot about what social media is doing because of course you are one of the most recognized fintech influencers in, in the true meaning. And it brings me to ask you the question, you, your impact, your influence is through books and blogs and the power of the world. Uh, unless you disagree with that, I really want to ask you how you feel this power of the world, is it underrated overrated how do you think it works in the fintech world well again it's interesting and i see lots of lists some of which have me at the top some of which have me at the bottom some of which completely miss me out and a lot of the reason for the uh variance is because i write and blogs are not included in most social media influencer lists it's purely how many twitter followers and linkedin connections you have um, whereas i'm far more focused on writing as a discipline and making an argument or provocation to affect change and i think that a lot of people tell me so i'm not saying it's what i think it's more people tell me that the stance i take the radical questions i ask makes me a person who challenges the institutions but doesn't try and upset them. I try and provoke them into change um, as someone who's a, a troublemaker, which is actually the, the title that I use for myself. I, I'm just a troublemaker in finance. Great. I think this is very important, especially now that we see uh, Anderson Horowitz uh, you know, announcing publicly that they, they want to become a media company and we'll be seeing more VCs launching online media companies. This is a very interesting shift uh, in the market and during uh, this time, uh, because obviously it's, it's the power um, of, of the world. You know, I, I read your digital human uh, book. And today, since we were going to meet, I wanted to look at when it was published and, you know, infer when you wrote it, because honestly, I hadn't looked at that. 
So it seems that it was published in 2018. So you wrote it a year before 2017. So it's already three plus years old, right? And I want to, to, to pick a couple of points because they're so timely, you know, three, four years after uh, writing this and with all this change that of course nobody could have predicted or expected and, and its impact. And, and I'm picking a part that um, you write about the cash being dirty. Do you remember that part? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that um, I've spent all my life professionally doing is trying to look at where technology is taking us next, rather than talking about today or yesterday, because you can't change today or yesterday, but you can change tomorrow. And so, um, you know, I won't say that I predicted everything, but a lot of the things that we talk about today, like banking as a service, if banking as a service, I wrote about in 2008, and now it's the big deal, 12 years later. Um, I would claim to actually have been the first to, to use the phrase banking as a service. Um, equally, I, you know, five years ago, was saying that blockchain will not take off in the near term. It'll take at least a decade or more before blockchain in production systems starts to have an impact in finance and government. And I still think it's five years away. So you know, it's really trying to address what's obvious um, based on technological change and cash in particular it's obvious that it's going to eventually diminish in usage it won't necessarily die you know I, I, I talk mainly about a less cash future rather than a cashless future because there's parts of society that still depend on cash but that part of society that depends on cash is getting smaller and smaller and those who have been used to using cash are now moving very rapidly away from using cash, particularly because of the pandemic, um, because they've been told that cash is dirty, um, which it is. Um, it doesn't necessarily spread coronavirus, but it does have a lot of human waste on those banknotes, which, to be honest, you shouldn't really be touching. So, um, you know, digital payments, contactless payments, uh, online payments is going to be the future, and it, it's already here. Let, let me read this paragraph, because really, I mean, that you wrote this four years ago, it says cash is dirty. And here I'm talking literally, often cash has been in contact with human emissions that are undesirable. If you are not already aware, 94% of US dollar bills are contaminated with bacteria, including some that can cause pneumonia, blood infections, diarrhea, and, and urinary tract and respiratory system infections. In addition, research revealed that the flu virus can survive up to 17 days on banknotes when accompanied by mucus, and four out of five banknotes have traces of cocaine and other drugs. Just amazing reading it uh, today. So, I mean, we, we all suffered, and we know that 2020 is going to go down as the year of the, the coronavirus pandemic. And then the question comes, are you fearing for the next virus that might be a digital virus and that might attack our digital life 
as a digital human? Is that something that crosses your mind as, as we more and more become digital? And how do you see that fear? Sure, sure. I mean, I actually have just written a blog about do we rely too much on technology? Because when technology doesn't work, we're completely up the creek without a paddle. Um, and we've seen that when Visa and MasterCard systems have gone down, albeit for only a short time. But when that does happen, it creates a huge media outcry because people can't pay for groceries, diesel, um, you know, their daily needs. And so you know, the payments network, particularly the financial network, is integral to our lives. And the more it moves into automation and digitalization, the more it has to be um, you know, not just, not 99.99% um, you know, uptime, it has to be 100% uptime. And that's the challenge, um, particularly when you have so many um, parties that want to disrupt systems, particularly between nations, and the you know, cyber attacks and hacks are happening almost every day. Although what's interesting, when you look at um, cybersecurity and the criminals who try and attack systems, Again, it's not every case, but it's certainly nine out of 10 cases is much more due to social engineering than systems engineering. Um, the systems are mainly robust and resilient, particularly in finance, but the weakness is when one of the employees gets scammed or duped or um, you know, believes that someone's talking to them who's um, in authority or who they have to share information with. Uh, and so, you know, that's the, the real weakness it's the, the humans in the process and we just need to have more and more ways of keeping up and, and what's interesting you know, again going back to fraud and security um, nearly every head of fraud i've met with in a bank says there's an acceptable level of loss and as long as we don't go above the acceptable level of losses we're comfortable so the bank is just trying to stay one step ahead of the criminals every now and again a criminal gets slightly ahead but as long as they're not too far ahead, then the bank's comfortable with it. Well, let's see when uh, when and if uh, central banks uh, digitize completely, whether it's some retail or wholesale central bank digital currency, what kind of concerns they will have, you know, for cybersecurity, right? That's, that's another big... Uh, but but if you put it in, in another context, Ali, I mean, you know, Going into a bank branch with a gun in the olden days got you the money. These days you go through the website to get the money, if you can. And in many ways, it's probably more secure now because you don't have that ability to walk in somewhere with a gun. That's true. That's true. I want to, to address a bit and touch upon the very important topic of digital identity. And, and for me, the interest is in self-sovereign digital identity because really I believe that unless we solve that or scale that we will never be able to get the next generation of the web going because I think that's an essential part of it whether you know you believe that some blockchain kind of technology will power the next generation of the web or not doesn't matter but digital identity self-sovereign digital identity is, is important. And I know you have touched upon it in the digital human book. I have not read your uh, value web book. I don't know if you, you talk about it there. How do you see that 
And where do you see the probability that it starts scaling? Is it Africa? Because it's definitely not the developed world in the West that, that will get this ball rolling. Yeah, I mean, digital identity is really going to be at the heart of the next generation of society. And um, one thing I do talk a lot about is the United Nations Sustainable Goals for 2030, um, of which goal number 16 is around um, societies that provide equality and inclusion. And specifically, 16.9 is issuing a legal identity for everyone on planet Earth. And right now, you know, there's something um, nearing 2 billion people who don't have a legal identity. And then there's another one and a half billion plus that are being abused and have their identity stolen or destroyed. Um, there's actually a new report that just came out the other day in the UK about slavery and human trafficking. And the key thing that happens as soon as you get somebody into the system of human trafficking, you destroy their identity documents and then they become no one. And that's a critical issue. And so in Africa, they have been experimenting in quite a few countries now with using the mobile phone with a biometric and a distributed ledger technology to create a legal identity for all citizens in a number of countries from Somalia through Sudan. And um, those experiments are trials. They haven't taken off yet. And I think the biggest issue is trying to create some global ident identity system that all governments could buy into because with the pre-pandemic travel that we had and the mixture of races and movements of migrants, um, you know, post-pandemic, we really need, need a better way of tracking and identifying individuals. Now, there's a backlash to that because I'm living in a Central European, Eastern European country that um, most of those countries like Czech Republic, Romania, Bulgaria and others uh, had identity systems before they had freedom and they don't like having the government identifying them all the time. So th there's a balance there between a, a digital identity and privacy. And that's the real argument for the next decade around how do we balance the needs of government to track and trace people, particularly if they have a virus, <laughs> versus the privacy of the individual. Right. right. Yeah, I mean, we, we are far away from a world where uh, every person at birth gets a, a digital wallet, so to speak, that is so, uh, basically a self-sovereign way to have an identity and keep it for life. Uh, who knows what will happen? I, I, I like the, um, the, the the proposition put forward by David Birch on this one, who's the authority for me in digital identity and all things digital identity related. And that um, his view is that we will have personas um, that we can release on demand to authorities and institutions, but we will never share our full identity because we own that. And so decentralized self-sovereign digital identity is definitely the way to go. And then the issuance of a uh, anonymized version of that data on a, an as-needed basis is a much better way of thinking about the future. Yeah, there's one project out of the UK, the Pillar Project, that uh, David Siegel seeded and, and, and now is out there, whose vision is exactly to do that. So, so you can basically share exactly the piece of... Uh, data that uh, that is needed and it's in a 
zero knowledge kind of fashion where they can validate the data but not really check the data. But we are um, far away from, uh, from that. Chris, before we wrap up our conversation, I wanted to ask you, you know, you're not traveling anymore and in all your books, I see, you know, that you're weaving your travel experiences with your field, finance field experiences. So, so how are you uh, operating in this new uh, reality and what's up your sleeve? You know, is it another book? What, what can you can we expect from you in 2021? Well, I've been obviously not leaving the house for almost a year. Um, I'm in Poland and to be honest, uh, in, in February, my travel arrangements started to be postponed and cancelled. And, um, and then everything, like everyone else, became a lockdown. Um, and I don't have much reason to leave the house, if I'm honest, because I don't, I don't speak Polish. Uh, unfortunately, I, I, I've got a few basic words, but there's therefore no motivation for me to go out and do anything other than sit here and write and think. And so I, that's what I've been doing, a lot of writing and thinking. Uh, I still do my blog every day. I've got two business books that are bubbling towards fruition. I hope to have them completed by the summertime and released in spring 2022. And then I've got two little boys who entertain me end endlessly, and I've been writing a lot of children's books. Oh, great. Amazing. So I, I'll tell you more about that in March when it's official. <laughs> great, great. I mean, you know, and the last word that I think uh, is worthy uh, touching upon is this issue. It's, it's a social issue uh, that I know you've written a lot about, which is you know the 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 six the people that are in their 60s today are like the people you know in their i don't know 25 30 <laughs> whatever it is so so this has profound implications for finance and for society of course well, you know as money is the core of of our life in many different ways even in emotional ways how do you see this playing out has it really have we really realized this? And are we building technology and businesses that are addressing this big uh, social shift? And that's a pretty complicated question because there's so many pockets of society that are different. Um, no two customers are the same, uh, which is why we need to personalize and individualize the experience to each and every client. And equally, banks unfortunately tend to treat treat their mass customer their mass affluent customer in particular as the same uh, and their needs being the same and yet some mass affluent customers really enjoy going into a branch and having a face-to-face -face conversation pre-pandemic <laughs> some never want to go into a branch and never want to see anybody in a bank they just want to deal with it in an app others want to have the mixture of physical and digital access and so um you know, the key thing I'm talking about today is forget omni-channel. We need to talk about omni-access. Omni-channel is where we layered technology on top of our old physical operations and we didn't change the operations. Omni-access refreshes the operations for a core digital platform that provides consistent experiences across every access device, whether that be access within branch or access via my telephone 
or access via my television or my computer or my car or my home or my glasses or my clothes, you know, whatever it may be, has to have a consistent digital core that provides on the access. But then equally, I think there's some tough choices that need to be taken in that for those pockets of society that um, maybe are techno um, phobes, um, there could be boutique bank services for that particular audience. For those who are techno natives, a, di a different bank that's boutique for that audience. For those who are like me, enjoying remote access, but every now and again want to talk to someone on the telephone, maybe that's a different pocket of the audience. And so I think banking needs to really focus upon that. How do we provide what feels like personalized, individualized services to a mass audience? Chris, that sounds uh, um, pretty much the same as what's going on in education. We need that kind of uh, personalization and access and maybe in, in healthcare too. So it's kind of we're seeing, you know, these issues permeating in different uh, sectors uh, in core aspects of our life, which are education, finances and, and health. I mean, the way you laid out, it kind of clicked to me that that, that is, you know, very similar in those uh, areas too. And I think education and health, unfortunately, are even more behind than finance. So we shouldn't feel so bad in finance, should we? <laughs> no, I mean, one of my favorite Monty Python sketches is from the life of Brian, where Brian stands on the balcony and says, look, I'm not the Messiah. You're all different. You're all individual. You're all unique. And one of the guys puts his hands up and says, I'm not. <laughs> that is fantastic. On that note, Chris, I want to thank you for being with us today and see you soon and maybe in person. Take care and enjoy the lockdown. <laughs> okay.